Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg. Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time is the NHS putting patients at risk by expanding the role of medical professionals who aren't qualified as doctors. Physician associates have been around in the health service for a couple of decades now in a supporting role to doctors. But there are plans to more than double their numbers in an attempt to plug gaps in the workforce. They don't have medical degrees, and while they do have to complete a two-year training course, there are concerns that physician associates just don't meet the gold standard of a qualified medic. In one tragic case, Emily Chesterton died in 2022 when a physician associate at her GP surgery in London misdiagnosed a fatal blood clot as first a sprain, then anxiety. This week, MPs have been discussing whether to bring PAs and anaesthetist associates under the regulation of the General Medical Council. Let's welcome Dr Matt Neal, co-chair of the Doctors' Association, a lobbying group which describes itself as the voice of frontline doctors. Welcome then, Matt. So uh, just talk me through your reservations and your concerns about physician associates. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Appreciate you coming on to the podcast. The concerns are quite extensive, really. And I think our first and foremost concern, as always, has to be about patient safety. So as, as you touched upon there in the introduction, I mean, the level of education and, and training that a physician associate or anesthesia associate undergoes is no way near any level of medical training. We're talking about a two-year postgraduate degree, but the quality of the undergraduate degree is very variable. You can't necessarily carry that information over. We know that these individuals primarily work with undifferentiated patients. By that, I mean patients who could come in with absolutely any problem whatsoever, you know, to a general practice or to an A&E department. That's the vast majority of patients. The issue with that is that you don't know what you don't know. That's something that we're really having into at medical school. You don't step beyond your competence. You simply do what you can. If you don't understand, you raise it to a senior and all this sort of stuff. We've seen from, from national evidence that we've collected, really, that that process seems to be lacking. That seems to be what the... The main issue is from all the concerns we've had raised from doctors nationally in terms of the episodes of bad practice or potentially dodgy practice, it's do they know what they don't know? And we are really concerned about that. Primarily, I mean, we have to be fair to them. Most of them come in with some sort of science degree of some sort. But I mean, I, for example, I did a graduate entry medical degree. So I did it in four years, right, which was tough word. I was a slog. I don't think you could do it any shorter, really. And my previous degree was a science degree. It was a biomedical science degree. I still find the graduate entry medical degree incredibly challenging despite my scientific background. So we have to bear that in mind, really. The difference in learning is just stark. And we've heard that from previous PAs themselves who've gone to study medicine. That Actually, it's like night and day, black and white, really. There's no comparison to, between the two courses. At the same time, though, when physician associates are on the ward or are in GP surgeries, they have to be under the control of a doctor, don't they? Under the control of a qualified doctor. Now, that may be direct control that may be indirect control but they're not working entirely without supervision it's tricky really because i think it depends where you're looking at these pas particularly you know in general practice they have to be supervised as you say indirectly or directly by a consultant a consultant in general practice is a fully qualified gp now gps as you know are incredibly stretched if you look at the training that a gp trainee would get you know there's dedicated supervision time within that rotor it's quite costly in terms of the time for a gp to train a gp trainee what we found with pas generally is that they have a very short period or a short window where they are intensely supervised you know in the first 12 18 months perhaps after graduation 
But after that, it drops off rapidly. And we're seeing stories of people having supervision, you know, once a week or once a month, discussing cases with their supervisor. That there's no way that that can be safe. There's, there's simply not a way. And whether it's just because the acuity of patients and the severity that they come in with is, is slightly lower in general practice, perhaps you're getting away with it. That's one concern. In hospital, it's a little bit different because, yes, it has to be a consultant overseeing you. So someone who's at least 10, 12 years postgraduate and, you know, the top of their game, really. What we found is really that the trusts are basically acting as a wild west, really, in this situation because of this lack of regulation and this lack of scope of practice, what we call for PAs. Essentially, they're just doing whatever the employer wants them to do. And there seems to be very little fight back on that. So we've heard some absurd stories. PAs are involved in neurosurgery without much neuroanatomy training and stuff in their, in their previous degrees. Or people doing independent bladder surgery, essentially mini-surgeries alone. There's, there's loads of worrying stories. And, and there are literally hundreds of these. So you can see why we are worried about patients, really, in, in this context. Oh, I'm very worried when you tell me that. Then seriously, people are having neurosurgery, brain surgery by people who have not had dedicated training and don't have specific qualifications to carry out brain surgery. I suppose the problem is here that there's a chance, okay, and I don't know the specifics, that that individual PA had really extensive supervision and training in their trust and that they were you know, creme de la creme of, of a PA, okay? So that, that's a possibility. But how do we know that? What's the, what's the required hoops to jump through to make sure that they are safe to do that? You know, a neurosurgical registrar, a, a doctor who's gone through foundation training, gone through their core surgical training, and then perhaps after a few years more of doing dedicated neurosurgery, might then be allowed to operate alone. So it's all very worrying. We, we don't know what's going on at the front lines, really. And that's what we're trying to desperately establish from this process of collecting data. I mentioned that MPs are looking at whether to bring physician associates and anaesthetist associates under the aegis of the General Medical Council, would that not provide some of the safeguards that you're concerned about? I think there's an argument that it's better to have regulation than no regulation. I think we're all agreed on that. Okay, What we're desperately worried about is this rush job, essentially. I know they won't agree with that. They've said they've been doing this for five years. They've been working hard on regulation, and I understand that. But really, the only scrutiny that's been applied to it has been the last six months. (laughs) So what we have to bear in mind is that necessarily the previous four and a half years wasn't necessarily done to, up to scratch we have concerns which i'm sure you're probably aware of already with how the gmc treats doctors for regulation anyway but in terms of whether they are the appropriate regulator for a pa or an anesthesia associate well we have to disagree really at the start of this whole process five years ago both the health and care professions council and the gmc agreed that they could regulate these individuals okay so the health and care professions council oversee you know physios um podiatrists all numbers of allied health professions okay and they agreed they could do the job but this is consultation that was held pretty much in stealth really which agreed that the gmc should do it our worry is that the, the gmc are associated with regulating medical practitioners we know from cases like emily cheston unfortunately she had no idea she wasn't seeing a doctor okay and her mother states that if she knew that she would have dragged her kicking and screaming to see one and we're worried that these terms and the, and the way that these people are introducing themselves to patients may not necessarily be clear enough. And if they're going to be put under this regulator that's the same as doctors, they're going to have ID numbers which are incredibly similar to doctors. They might even write Dr. John Smith on the notes because they've got a PhD or a, a similar doctorate from somewhere else. How on earth is a patient supposed to differentiate that from a doctor? We really think that's blurring the lines there. There's no good argument here for why another regulator couldn't take on this job. And it would be certainly you know, clearer for patients in that regard. Just so I'm clear then, do you think that the role of physician associate or anaesthetist associate should not exist? I think there's very little consensus on that. And I think 
ultimately, there's two broad churches on that. One is that they shouldn't exist at all, which I, I think is a really hard sell. You know, we've got a profession there that is working already in NHS. It's hard to take away staff from an already understaffed NHS. But I think there's two issues here. One is about regulation and about safety and where they fall under. And I think that's a discussion about whether it's the GMC or Healthcare Professionals Council. The second overarching issue is about scope of practice and what are they doing? I think most doctors would agree there is work that is suitable for these sort of individuals to do, but they should not be taking the role of senior doctors in clinics, doing, you know, independent surgeries, all the stuff that really should be the domain of trainee doctors, essentially, you know, senior doctors. If they're doing more basic level work, they're doing, just off the top of my head, diabetic reviews in general practice or you know, little things like that that are uh, more protocol driven, perhaps, or more basic procedures like blood taking and things. I don't think anyone would have any issue with that at all. It's about these more complicated procedures that are inherently risky, may have unintended consequences and need further training to manage those things. Those are the worries that really bother us as professionals. And you do have evidence then from your colleagues that they are taking on these more senior roles that we would traditionally associate only with qualified doctors. Absolutely. And we've got direct evidence of people being on rotors in senior positions. We had a, a PA that's been holding a consultant bleep for um, uh, stroke specialties. So obviously if you bleed on the brain and something like that, or a blood clot in your brain, you need to be treated ASAP in the emergency department usually and have intensive treatment. Most doctors will always tell you, unless they are a stroke doctor, they would not feel comfortable doing that sort of work. In Aberdeen, for example, I'll, I'll name it because that's where the evidence shows it happened. We know that a, a PA has held the consultant bleep. So that's the top level individual in that specialty absolutely no way that can be saved they have not got the sufficient training and safeguards to give that advice so we know that is happening in, in individual cases there's also a broader theme of worry from doctors that you know they're taking places on rotors nationally say for junior level staff they're being placed on wards by pas or people being seen in a e by the medical team are being seen by pas so we do have indirect evidence and some direct evidence as well and the roles that pas are taking out then are in your view, at best roles that should be supporting roles. That's what the name suggests. I'm thinking of, for example, nurse practitioners, nurses who have had an elevated level of training who can carry out some of the duties that a doctor may perhaps have traditionally carried out, but which nurses are perfectly well capable of carrying out. Is that what you're saying that physician associates and anaesthetic associates should be doing or is there perhaps even an elevated level of practice that they could be responsible for in your view i think that probably needs to be a discussion with the broader theme of people as well we need to obviously involve the nursing staff in that discussion i have the greatest respect for people at amps they go through rigorous obviously nursing training they follow a different model of, of learning there as well so there's no doubt they bring individual things and unique things to a discussion i think that's not for debate the issue we have with physician associates is that they are essentially doing the role of a doctor. It, I've had multiple discussions over the last few months with individual PAs about what is it you're doing? What are you bringing uniquely that isn't just taking away from what a doctor does? And I've not heard an answer to that question. You know, there's lots of workarounds and they, or they stay on the, the rotors for longer and things like that. But there's no actual individual practice they do that can't be covered by someone else. And that's not the case for ANPs. That's not the case for physios. So in terms of where they fit... I. I don't think it's fair to say they're equivalent to ANPs because in the same way that they're not equivalent to a doctor, they're not equivalent to a nurse either. They're not really anything substantially. This is the thing. They are a short-term solution to a very long-term issue that hasn't been addressed in terms of medical staffing. We all know really if they properly funded not just medical school places, which they have committed to, but also specialist training for, for doctors and supported these out-of-training 
specialist roles. So there's called SAS doctors as well, which are the fastest growing area of medicine, really. And they stay on walls for longer. They don't rotate round. We could put much more support into those sort of roles and have adequate medical pressures on the wards and in A&Es without difficulty. It's all about finances, isn't it? And that's why they're doing it. The issue there is we haven't seen any evidence that PAs save any money. You know, they're paid more than most entry-level junior doctors are. They're paid more than some of the senior doctors are. I, I, I'm speechless. I don't know how to make that work in my head. I don't think anyone does. The pay differential may, in fact, work inversely to what people might expect in this situation. Obviously, there's less training time involved in getting a physician associate or an anaesthetist associate onto the wards. Is this ultimately about getting doctors on the cheap? I think it is. I think we have to think of the context in which they were brought in. I think the honest intention was back in 2003 to bring in these roles and take away work from doctors. I don't think that was the hostile intent back at the time. I think that really what's changed is since around possibly 2016, maybe a little bit earlier, where these roles have accelerated much more. They've been dragged into positions by trust where they wouldn't normally be put in. And then, of course, now post-COVID, we've got all these huge waiting lists, haven't we, and procedure lists that need to get worked through. So you can see the temptation there for a government to increase these roles that essentially cannot easily emigrate you know, for a start. So they can't move abroad like the doctors can, who are getting annoyed with all this industrial action and lack of pay. So it's a nice little safe net for the government there. So I can see why it's very convenient to increase the, the scope of these roles and the numbers of them. How significant is the ongoing issue around junior doctors and consultants' pay? Of course, it's significant. I mean, I can't comment because I'm not from the BMA in terms of the industrial action side of things. But obviously, DKB wholeheartedly support the action. You know, we know that doctors are leaving. They feel undervalued. I certainly feel undervalued as a, as a junior doctor in a and I don't think anyone likes the level of safety and risk that's going on in these sort of areas at the moment just because of understaffing and people leaving. So, of course, it has to be addressed. And the easiest way to address that is by making people feel valued. And the easiest way to make them feel valued is to give them a value, <laughs> give them pay. That said, if you were listening to this and you are a physician's associate and you have done your two years conversion training, having got a science degree initially, and you feel that you're really contributing on the ward or at the GP surgery that you work at, might you not feel that here's Dr. Matt Neal, typical doctor, downgrading everything that I contribute in my working day yeah i think we have to preface this by saying online there has been a lot of toxicity there has been a lot of abuse towards individuals especially which i don't think is fair you know especially when there are people who are working really to the top of their ability and there's no evidence they've caused any harm whatsoever so i think we do need to you know denounce that sort of behavior i don't think however it's fair to say that people raising concerns about safety or raising concerns about inappropriate scope of practice is therefore bullying. I, I know that's the difference between being a whistleblower and just being someone who's a, a bully. So we really need to respect that process. I do feel bad for them in that sense that if there's no evidence of someone individually causing harm and they've worked as a PA in general practice for 10 years without any issues and that practice found them economically viable, that seems reasonable. But I think when you do a deep dive into the economics of why they were viable and at what cost to full-blown GPs being in the practice... That's where the issues arise. So actually, there's a story just last week of a, um, a GP practice that has essentially sacked all its GPs. They now only employ nurse practitioners and PAs and have an overarching one GP partner who supervises these people. And that's the sort of effect we're looking at, really, because these, you know, the government's forcing the funding down one particular avenue. They're not expanding the, the funding for full-blown GPs. I'd hesitate to kind of accuse 
your association of protectionism, because obviously we're talking about health there and clearly training does matter. And I'm sure that every physician associate and anaesthetist associates in the country would agree with that as well. But there will be people out there who say, look, this is just about doctors who want to protect their existing pay structure. They want to improve their existing pay structure, protecting what they have within the health ecology of this country here are people who are making a contribution i think there's two parts to that one is obviously the DAUK. so we established ourselves in 2018 on the basis of safety really and how doctors have been treated nationally in terms of by their trusts and by their regulators and things so traditionally we're not involved in things like protectionism and, and pay disputes we're not a union we're not the bma so it's, it's very hard for access at us for raising that concern i think when the bma speaks up there's always that avenue of um of attack really which comes from you know the newspapers and things but actually even in this case i don't think it holds much merit it's all around safety they've held their own surveys of doctors concerns about pas and you know these are real examples from real life and if we're not acting on those we're not doing those doctors a service really are we the british medical association also says that physician associates shouldn't be regulated in the same way as well so that isn't just something that that your organization is saying that's correct yeah and i think it's um a growing voice you know i think we go back six months from now into the past this issue was relatively unknown even amongst our own profession you know it was mentioned you know i think people higher up and consultant positions were certainly supervising these people and knew about them but a lot of the junior doctors didn't this consultation i referred to earlier back in 2017 i think it's something only 68 doctors junior doctors replied to it it's because they had no idea it was going on. This is over three months or so. Now you can look at the the voices online in the thousands, really, that uh, we're unhappy with the situation, not just for ourselves, but for patients. It's just not safe. So going forward, then, do you want the abolition of physician associates and anaesthetist associates, or do you want a much more clearly defined role for them so that they are seen as junior to fully qualified doctors? I think, as I said before, it's hard to make an argument to get rid of a profession entirely. That's a really hard thing to do, especially with the way things are at the moment. I'm not ruling that out. I think if the conversations I have nationally amongst, you know, Royal Colleges, Department of Health and Social Care, the GMC themselves, if they felt that was the best avenue, then obviously that is the best avenue. What is lacking at the moment is that multi-level discussion between doctors on the ground. These are Royal Colleges that are meant to be the voices of, of doctors, not always. And unfortunately, as it's been seen recently, the, the Royal College of Physicians hasn't been standing up for its junior doctors, unfortunately, in this particular instance. But those are conversations that need to have, you know, between several organisations, really, and really find where these people should be lying in terms of their scope of practice. That is the, the key phrase I keep mentioning, because that is where it really comes down to. Matt, thank you for your time. We did speak to the Department for Health and Social Care. They said the role of medical associates, such as anaesthesia and physician associates, is to work with doctors, not to replace them. And they already make a significant contribution to the NHS. They said the new legislation will ensure they are properly regulated and boost patient safety with the General Medical Council operating strict fitness to practice procedures and setting educational and training standards. They say we are taking action to reduce pressure on frontline services and improve access to high quality healthcare for patients, while also setting out how we will retain and recruit more staff through the NHS long term workforce plan. What, you, you're smiling away there, Matt, as I'm reading that. It's, it's lovely PR, isn't it? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. What is high quality healthcare to them? They say they're working hard to retain staff. I've seen no evidence of that whatsoever. So, proofs in the pudding really we know this legislation this week is likely to pass okay i think that that's that's a given really with the 
the way it's being passed through Parliament and the way that they're bringing it through a secondary legislation, if the government wants it to pass, it will pass. So the conversation then becomes about how we can work on this scope of practice or, extreme example, how can we overturn that legislation? Matt, thank you. That's Dr Matt Neal from DA UK, the Doctors' Association UK. You will have heard earlier Matt saying that a physician associate was tasked with holding a consultant bleep for a brain specialty in Aberdeen, effectively replacing a consultant. We did put that to the Grampian NHS Trust that runs Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. They wouldn't comment on the specific allegation, but an NHS Grampian spokesperson said physician associates are an important, valued and long-standing part of the NHS Grampian workforce. They play a vital role in delivering enhanced clinical capacity within multidisciplinary teams, supporting our wider efforts to ensure sufficient availability of high-quality training opportunities for other staff. If you are a physician associate, or an anaesthetist associate. If you want to come back on some of the things that Matt has said, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email to goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's at goldbergradio at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you want to support our work here on the Byline Times podcast, the best way you can do that is by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. Our monthly newspaper has fantastic articles that you can't read anywhere else, as well as the best of our online offerings. So find out how to subscribe to get a fantastic monthly newspaper and support this pod as well by heading over to bylinetimes.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times, produced by me, Adrian Goldberg, in Birmingham. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.